Hi, church family. I am Glory Helveston, your assistant pastor here <laughs> at Church in the Square. Assistant to the pastor. To the pastor. <laughs> Romans 3. Please open your Bibles to Romans 3, 24. <clears throat> and our justice by his grace as a gift through the redemption that he is in Christ Jesus. Let's please pray together. Dear God, please thank you for my church family and all of these people in the world right now. Please help the people who are sick, poor, or just need help. And also, thank you for your love and kindness and things that we don't even deserve, but you still give it to us. Amen. Thank you, church family. Hello, church. My name is Jason, and I am Glory's dad. Please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Romans chapter 3. Verse 24, that will be our primary text. Uh, it's in the New Testament, the right side of your Bible. If you are opening up an old school one, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, then you get to Acts and then Romans. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left. Uh, I want to let you know as you're finding that text that we have a new app that is going live today. So check out in the, whatever app store that your uh, device uses, find the Church Center app, Church Center, and in Church Center, search for Church in the Square. Uh, and that's where you can access a ton of information from our website, upcoming events information that you need to know as group leaders, as people, uh, part of groups, um, or any uh, things coming up like membership gatherings and those, those sorts of things. So we'd love for you to get that. Also, there's a new giving platform that we'll be using that um, works seamlessly with that app. So we'd encourage you, if you're a regular giver here at Church in the Square, uh, or even just uh, sporadically giving one time or whatever it might be, that would be a great way uh, for you to continue to do so. We'll be moving to that platform in the coming months. So go ahead and get that app, um, sign up for that new giving platform. It'll be the way that in the coming months that we even RSVP for in-person gatherings when, by God's grace, we gather again in person. And so you're going to want that app as a member, as somebody who's regularly part of uh the church family here at Church in the Square. Again, Church Center and search for Church in the Square. More information will be coming up uh, about that, but wanted to let you know. We'll be in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, as we mentioned and already you heard read uh, today, and we'll focus on that first portion of uh, the verse. And uh, real talk, I know that it can feel as though we are creeping along in Romans, and it it feels like we're going ever so slowly, and that's because we are we are we are going slowly. Paul has a pack, Paul has packed eternal truths into phrases that he has written uh, the first century Christian audience there in Rome, and so we want to take our time to understand uh, specifically what he is saying by God's grace through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this really is likely how Paul's first readers would have interacted and would have gone through this letter. They, they likely would have read it aloud when they first got it in the collection of as many of uh, 
the Christians there in Rome that they could gather, read it in its entirety from chapter 1 through 16, and then probably, like we're going now, when they gather, just sort of piece by piece walking through it and considering it. And so I would encourage you that as we may be navigating this slowly and taking our time, read through Romans. Take time, read through multiple chapters, uh, read from the beginning of Romans all the way through the end over the coming years as we navigate this text. I hope that that will be uh, fruitful. But to this point in uh, Romans chapter 1, 2, and on into 3 through verse 24, uh, Paul has been generally describing salvation. To, to, to be saved, you need to be righteous. And so he's been communicating uh, truths around this idea. And Jesus himself, as we've learned, is our righteousness. He is, uh, Paul has taken a short digression from that, reminding us that there is no distinction between uh, religious people and secular people or Jews and Gentiles, that we all fall short, we all sin. And yet, any of us, even though we all sin and we all are always falling short, can receive Jesus through faith, that we can be saved. Specifically, over the past few weeks, we've been looking d- directly at Christ, if you will, and considering his righteousness, that he is our righteousness revealed not, as opposed to discovered, that he is our righteousness received, not earned, that he is our righteousness without distinction and without bias. And having considered, I think, the fullness of his righteousness, today we'll consider his grace. That's what Paul highlights next in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Let, let's look at it in its context, verses 21 through 24. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And and here's our text today, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus Christ is God's righteousness for us, and Jesus Christ is God's grace to us. That is salvation. This is what Paul is communicating. But, But what specifically is salvation? How are we saved? What, 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 uh, what instead do we believe is the way that we are saved? So what, what objection might we have to this idea of salvation? And then finally, how, how is salvation possible? Those are the questions we want to look at today. What is salvation specifically? How are we saved? What do we believe instead of that? And, and ultimately, how, where's the power found in this salvific work? And so what Paul teaches here in verse 23, I believe, taken within the context of Romans chapter 3, is the nature of salvation, the pathway of salvation, and I think in that there's an objection to salvation, and then finally we'll look at the power of salvation. So the nature, the pathway, the objection, and the power. So first, let's begin with what is salvation? What is the nature of salvation? Perhaps one of the most simple yet helpful stories of the nature of salvation is uh, about the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi, and they start praying and singing. Perhaps you've heard this story. God makes the earthquake. He shakes the prison, and the doors loose and open in the jail. And the jailer sees the open doors uh, and was about to take his own life. But then Paul interrupts him, and he, he simply says, we are all here. Nobody has gone anywhere. Of course, the jailer thinks that his not only is his life or his job at risk, but now he's going to take his own life because that, in his mind, probably was more 
uh, was a better route than dealing with the implications of those uh, in charge of him with losing all of these prisoners. And so Paul says, we are here. And Luke tells us, Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31, then the, the jailer, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Notice the jailer's question was about what he must do. Having witnessed a miracle and his job and his life saved all in an instant, he's likely ready to do anything. So uh, Paul and Silas could have said anything. And, and this man would have been like, I, I will do it. Everything. I thought I just lost everything. And now uh, all is well. I, I will give my life to the God that you are singing about and the God that you are praying to. What must I do? He says. But their answer is not an action. Rather, it's a passive response to an action or rather an identity of another. What do they say? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Here's what we first must understand, Church in the Square, about the nature of salvation. Salvation is fundamentally about what someone else, namely Jesus, has done for us. Salvation is not about what you have done, what you desire to do, what you aspire to do, what you plan to do. Rather, salvation is fundamentally about what someone else, Jesus Christ, has done for us. Scholar Hajith Fernando comments on this passage and he says, there was nothing that he needed to do for everything had already been done for him by Christ. So what is salvation? Salvation is a work of God. Salvation is possible because of someone else, but salvation is necessary because of us. You see, Paul is writing the Roman Christians because both of these things are true, that salvation is possible and yet it is necessary. Let me remind you of how Paul explained the problem, the problem we are all in and, and why we need salvation. Turn to Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 8 and 9. So perhaps just back to the left one page. He says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So throughout his letter, Paul tells us we are all under sin. So simply put, my sister and my brother, sin is our problem. Sin is our problem. Evil is our issue. And these lead, Paul says, to wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. Our need for salvation is due to our moral guilt under God's holy law, which defines our existence. Hear this, friend, neighbor, anyone who would hear this, that without Christ, sin defines your existence now and forever. Without Christ, sin defines and controls and has captured your existence. Paul goes on, look at verse 12, still in Romans chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law will, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So the solution that Paul uh, says that salvation, Paul tells us, is that we can be, here's the word, justified. Notice that in verse 13 that we just read. That, but doers of the word who are what? Justified. That the solution is this idea of justification. The word is monumental to our understanding and even under, and, and knowing where these actions or this doing of the word or doing of the law comes in. If it doesn't save us, where does it fit in to the story? So our understanding of the nature of salvation is controlled by this idea of justification. In fact, that's what marks our sermon series in Romans, which we've called Justified by Love. It's also the title of my least favorite Justin Timberlake album, No Shade. But (laughs) I digress. This is the word justified, which Paul employs in our text today, Romans 3, verse 24. Look at it with me, back to Romans 3, 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, to be justified is to be proclaimed righteous. See, what what we ought to understand about this particular word is that justification is an announcement. It's a proclamation. Now, we might think that an announcement is not very powerful. In fact, we often, I think, value things that people do much more than what they say. This is why the jailer, I'm sure, doesn't say, what must I say to be saved, but he says, what must I, what must I do? This is why we have and, and do ask similar questions all the time. What must I do to be saved? But let's think about this. What is the value in being justified if, if it, or the efficacy and power of it if it merely is an announcement of righteousness? Well, in truth, the words are not where the power is, but rather in the one who says them. Hear this, church. This is such a good word and important thing for us to settle in today. The power of our justification is not in the content of words spoken, but rather the character of the speaker. See, a defendant who pleads not guilty bears little weight, but when the judge speaks the word, it changes everything. Are you with me yet? That when the one who speaks has the weight, has the, uh, the entire authority, has the power, has the worth, has the truth, has the efficacy in his position, then such a proclamation of not guilty or righteous changes everything. See, the power is not in the words. The power is in the person. And church, who is it? Who is the one who proclaims us righteous over and against overwhelming evidence of our sinful condition? Who is it? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That's salvation. He is our salvation. Convincing ourselves that we don't need to be saved further proves our guilt. Or merely speaking for ourselves further proves our guilt. Saying we are innocent means nothing. Thinking happy thoughts does nothing. Positive self-love and self-talk does nothing. But when Jesus Christ says we are righteous, we are freed forever. Because when God justifies a sinner, he is acquitting them of all charges that could possibly be brought against them now and forever 
by anyone. But it must be the Lord who speaks. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the one and the only one who could condemn you, forgives you. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the only one who is righteous, calls you righteous. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the only one who owns heaven, so he can pull you back from hell. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the only one who is unstained by sin, frees you from sin. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the only one who needs no salvation, therefore he can be your salvation. Who is it? Jesus Christ. He is salvation. Not what we've done, what he has done. Not what we speak, what he has spoken. To be saved, we need to be righteous. And God in Christ, who is righteous, calls us so. He justifies us. See, the nature of salvation then is this, being called righteous by the righteous one. So then how are we saved? Or what is the pathway of salvation? What is the means by which this proclamation is made? Well, Paul gives us the answer quite simply. Look again, Romans 3, verse 24. He says, and are justified by his, what's that word? Grace as a gift. Paul explains the pathway of salvation by repeating an idea with two different words. We are justified, he says, by grace as a gift. Salvation is by God's grace. God calls us righteous as a gift. See, the pathway of salvation is grace. The nature of salvation is this justification, and the pathway of salvation is grace. The idea of grace is central to Paul's understanding of God, and really it should be our understanding as well. Grace, or the word charis in uh, secular Greek, meant what delights. It was referenced, or used rather in reference to something that brought joy and happiness, like simply something like a gift. So it was often paired, as it is here, with the word gift or dore. It came to be associated with receiving good favor even from the gods. But in Paul's understanding... In this particular way that he teaches us, it's clear that he also employs a sort of Hebrew understanding to his usage along with the Greek language. Because Charis, in context, then paints a picture of a weaker person receiving assistance and care from a stronger, more capable, unaffected person. But underneath all of this assistance, it's not not just an exchange of services, but rather the assistance is is fueled and driven by delight and affection and love. Think about Noah. In a bleak and broken world, without any regard for his own, his personal moral condition, the writer of Genesis tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word translated as favor means grace. Similarly, when Moses heard the weeping and complaining of Israel, he cried out to God for grace. Numbers eleven fifteen. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, Moses says to God, that I may not see my wretchedness. See, Noah was in great need. He couldn't help himself. He couldn't help the world around him. He did not deserve rescue. Neither did his neighbors around him. And yet he receives grace. 
Moses was frustrated beyond words and couldn't help himself. He asks for what? Grace. And each, in similar fashion, the, the language in both of these texts, in Genesis and also in Numbers, found favor in God's sight. The, the pathway of grace is a passive experience. That the, these two men are not saved by doing. They, they are saved by the doing of another. That's grace. It's assistance given to a weaker party, one who could not aid and help themselves. It's love extended to someone despite the fact that they do not deserve that type, that manner, that power, that strength, that worth of love. The stories of Noah and Moses, I think, give us clarity of God's grace from the Old Testament. But what is generally uh, the quality of God that we see anywhere in Scripture his actions in history begin to crystallize in the New Testament around this idea of justification. Theologian Herman Bovink says that grace is God's voluntary, unrestricted, unmerited favor toward guilty sinners, granting them justification and life instead of the penalty of death which they deserve. See, grace is the pathway of salvation. Grace, then, is the unmerited favor and affection of God, not just in general, but when we get to the New Testament, we we see clearly, it comes into focus, that it is through Jesus Christ. At this point, I went back and forth trying to pluck out a portion of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and just thought, you know what, this entire passage needs to be read because it gives this full picture of of God's grace for us. One of the most brilliant paragraphs found anywhere in the Bible. Hear this, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our salvation, our justification, the announcement of our righteousness by the righteous one comes to us by way of the unmerited favor of God by his grace. The great writer Frederick Buechner said, grace is something you can never get but can only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries or cream or earn 
good looks. See, sin killed us. And dead things do not come back to life on their own. Sin killed us and dead things stay dead. Sin killed us and Jesus made us alive. We did nothing. We could do nothing. Jesus has done everything. In other words, it's a gift. That's the second aspect of this pathway of salvation. Look again at verse 24. It says, by his grace as a gift. What's this word mean? Well, in speaking about those who refused to believe in him. Jesus said this in John 15, 25. He said, they hated me without a cause. Without a cause is a translation of the same word for gift in Romans 3, 24, that word uh, dore. The translation in John, though, doesn't it draw out a bit more of the meaning of this word that helps us understand where Paul is coming from and what he's getting at, that grace is not a gift of an occasion. Hear, hear this. This is not a, an obligation or charity because it's your birthday or even because you have a need. God is not obligated to save us because he made us. God is not obligated to be gracious to us because we are somehow individualistically special. God is not obligated to justify us because of occasion or pleasantries or, or pity. Hear this, church. Grace is extended to you with out cause or according to the Bible, keeping in mind these two passages from Romans chapter three and the one we just heard in John 15, according to the Bible, there is as much reason or cause to hate Jesus as there is to save us. There is as much cause to hate Jesus as there is to save us. None. And yet, through the pathway of grace, through the means of a gift, the gift, we are saved. But let's be clear. It is by grace, it is a gift, but salvation is not free. Or perhaps more specifically, salvation is not free for us. Paul is clear in Galatians that the grace God is is extended or extends to us is at the cost of his son's life. And the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's grace. Free for us, costly for him. See, because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we receive the unmerited favor of God. Who could object to to such a thing? Who could possibly despise justification by grace alone? Me. And I think perhaps you as well. What objection could we possibly have to, to grace. Well, I think we all do all the time. What, what, what objection, what is it in, our, in the human heart that, that sort of bristles at this idea? And, and I, I think it's this. I think our objection is that we don't actually believe we need to be saved, that we actually need salvation. I want to try to 
explain this so that we understand because perhaps at first blush you go no totally i'm, I'm down with salvation i know that i i need it and, and, and i'd like to press in a little bit to make sure that we see and that ultimately maybe to help us understand where our friends and neighbors are coming from about why they might not understand why they need salvation see the the, the nature and pathway of salvation are only beautiful to us if we believe salvation is necessary and that's where we often i think get tripped up but if we aren't convinced we need to be saved, then the cross of Christ is really a silly fantasy. At worst, and perhaps at best, it's a kind gesture, but, but just too much, unnecessary. Are you with me? See, Chicago is filled with people who believe salvation is just that. It's not necessary. Perhaps they look at themselves and look at the world, and they may concede that it's not perfect. Maybe you do this as well. It's clear things could be better and less suffering would be ideal. But perhaps sometimes you read Romans, particularly the first couple of chapters, you go, yo, Paul, this is kind of extreme. It's not really, what, that bad. See, it's clear things could be better, but conceding that divine rescue is needed often remains elusive. In fact, to the skeptical, we who even talk about salvation all the time, the religious and religion itself is not a remedy to our problem, but is the main problem in their eye. See, the basic presumption is that things are bad, but not that bad, or at least not bad in a cosmic sense or a spiritual level. See, many people in our city don't think that spiritual awakening or divine forgiveness is really all that necessary. The human beings just need to love each other and the planet, take care of the planet, and things will get better. This is the kind of context, the air we sort of breathe in a city like Chicago, perhaps something that even for you, you wrestle with, that you think, gosh, we were often really hard on ourselves in the way that we talk about, about sin around here. See, I, th- I think it crystallized in 2015. In 2015, the United Nations came up with the, the global goals for sustainable development. Their aim, they said, was to make the world a better place in 15 years. This is 2015. So in 15 years, they want to make the world a better place through what they called their 17 beautiful ambitions. These included things like ending world poverty, eradicating global hunger, climate action, and achieving gender equality. Now, just so that we're not misunderstood, that we we should not decry any of these noble pursuits. Praise God for them. I, I've, I've read all 17 and can say yes and amen to each and every one in principle. However, what the Christian understands through the scriptures, when we open the Bible, is that sin is the cause of each and every one of these global issues and an infinite more. Because of Adam's sin, God said in Genesis three seventeen, cursed is the ground because of you. As we've considered, as we considered last week, sin is a guilt and it's a pollution. That means sin has shaken everything. So when we consider even these things that the United Nations have come up with, that maybe sort of crystallize or articulate very specifically what we feel and what we sense, that, the, that things are bad, but they're not that bad. It's not at this cosmic spiritual level. Well, poverty exists because of global greed. Hunger exists because of universal selfishness. Climate change it exists because of hubris. Gender inequalities exist because of the misuse of power. See, sin is the problem underneath the surface of every problem we face. 
forgive me, I don't mean to over-spiritualize and I don't mean to oversimplify really complex and weighty issues, but we must see that what lies at the root of this vast forest of brokenness that is springing forth from the soil of our existence is sin. According to God, common grace, because of his common grace, we should be vigilant in the visible work of seeking justice and healing our world. Absolutely. But our core issue always lies at the heart. Our main problem is sin and its consequence, death and hell and eternal separation from God. That's our problem. At a commencement address in 2019, Dr. John Piper put it this way, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. See, we must be a people who mitigate the immediate and help with the immediate suffering of our neighbors. But we must not be deceived. Our neighbor's greatest need ravages their heart, which is dead in their trespasses and sin. See, the nature and pathway of salvation are only understood as well as we understand the danger that we are in. And in modern cities and in modern contexts like Chicago, we've convinced ourselves that the problem is manageable. The problem is manageable. However, I'd like to suggest to you that the problem is only manageable because we have convinced ourselves we see the whole problem. God help us in this. We have to claim to have complete understanding. We have to claim omniscience. In other words, we have to claim to be God. And my friends, this is the problem, not the solution. And may I suggest, this is not just an issue when it comes to salvation. It's also a problem, church, in our sanctification that we push back against our brothers and sisters who want to lean in and speak the truth in love to us because we don't think the problem is that bad. And so we back away from community that is saying sin is the issue, not just rest. Not just that you need more time off of work. Sin is the issue, not just COVID-19. Sin is the issue, not just that you live in the wrong city or the wrong apartment. Sin is the issue underneath all of your issues. And the Christian does not push back against that. We welcome with introspection a brother or sister who is pushing against this idea that we are God and we know everything better than everyone else. That's a good friend. That's a brother or sister in Christ. See, when we convince ourselves that we know the full problem, we constantly are pushing back brothers and sisters that have vision of our blind spots that we could possibly not see. In some ways, in many ways, Jesus is resigned to ignore those who don't need saving or who have convinced themselves that they don't need saving, which may seem harsh, but here in Matthew chapter 19, here's what Jesus said. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn, he tells his disciples, what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
believing that you don't need to be saved is the only thing that keeps you from salvation. Sin does not send people to hell. Trying to be your own savior does. That's why the jailer's question is so misleading. There is nothing we must do. There is nothing we can do, church, to save ourselves. This is why we sing, come ye sinners. All the fitness he requireth is that you feel your need of him. In other words, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The nature of salvation is justification. The pathway is grace. The objection we have is that we don't need to be saved. But here's the power, Jesus himself. Romans 3, 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The power of salvation is the redeeming work of Christ. And we'll consider this more next Sunday. But for now, here's the good news. To those who know, who confess they need saving, to those who long for salvation, to those who simply know, and nothing else perhaps, that they are sinners. Jesus' hands are open wide. In other words, it is not a matter of you mustering up enough faith, nor is it about you finding the right thing to do or the right rhythm or routine or doing it enough or better. It is not a matter of your will at all. Well, who is it? Hear what Paul tells young Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus came into the world to save, here it is, sinners. Who is it? Sinners do not invite salvation. Who is it? Sinners do not search for salvation. So who is it? Sinners need saving, but are so lost in sin, they don't think they even have a problem. It's not that bad. So who is it? Jesus Christ, he came. Who is it? Jesus Christ, he is able to save. Who is it? Jesus Christ, he is righteousness personified. Who is it? Jesus Christ, he calls us righteous. Who is it? Jesus Christ, he is our grace. Who is it? Jesus Christ, he is our salvation. So Heavenly Father, may we confess, though we know so little, give us enough understanding, give us enough insight, give us enough clarity, shine enough light that we might simply say, all I know is I need a rescue. All I know is I need help. All I know is that I'm a sinner. Because that's enough. You promise, Heavenly Father, that if we just have a mustard seed of faith, we'd move mountains. That if we simply would know that we are sinners, you would be our Savior. Help us to believe that. Help us to cherish it. Help us to live in a manner worthy of that. And in a reflection of that, we pray for your glory, our good. We ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.